Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, how to turn embryonic stem cells into anything. But first up, here's the news. Crocodiles in trees. Thought you were safe out of the water and off the ground? A University of Tennessee study has found that crocodiles can climb trees. The study observed crocodiles in North America, Australia and Africa. The researchers found four species of crocodiles that climb trees. Smaller crocodiles could climb higher than large ones. Crocodiles were observed climbing as high as four metres up a tree and five metres down a branch. Crocodiles climb to control their temperature, to watch for threats, and of course, to catch prey. The study also mentions Australian crocodiles climbing chain-link fences up to two metres tall. The study was published in Herpetology Notes and titled Climbing Behaviour in Extant Crocodilians. The lead researcher was Vladimir Dinets, a research professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Tennessee. Who knew psychology was so dangerous? Professor Dinetz has also published observations of crocodiles using sticks to catch birds. Mugger crocodiles in India and American alligators were seen using sticks and twigs to lure birds during nest building season. The crocodiles and alligators stayed still for hours and then would suddenly lunge if a bird approached the sticks on their nose. The paper was published in Ethology, Ecology and Evolution under the title Crocodilians Use Tools for Hunting. From crocodiles with sticks to alligators with cameras, researchers strapped National Geographic critter cams onto the backs of American alligators to study their feeding habits up close. The critter cams were held on the back with a backpack-like harness around their waist. Turns out the alligators eat a lot of crayfish and turtles, and mostly hunt at night. They were most successful between 4am and 9am. The article appeared in National Geographic, and the paper was published in PLOS, the Public Library of Science 1, titled Animal-Born Imaging Reveals Insights into the Foraging Behaviours and Deal Activity of a Large-Bodied Apex Predator, the American Alligator. The videos will be embedded on the Diffusion Radio webpage for this show. I myself strapped a camera onto a rather smaller and friendly animal last weekend. I taped my Luxy wearable camera to the collar of a seven-month-old Chihuahua puppy accompanied by his human on a trip to Centennial Park. You can see the video of Doggy Cam Toby's Day Out on the Diffusion webpage for this show. Toby is very close to the ground and he rocked the camera up and down whenever he ran which was most of the time. Toby failed to hold any sticks still long enough to catch birds. He didn't climb any trees and he left alone the chain link fences. 
You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Michael Morris is head of the Embryonic Stem Cell Laboratory at the Bosch Institute of Physiology at the School of Medicine at the University of Sydney. He spoke to me about investigating the basic science of embryology to find out how stem cells turn into other cells. So two things. One is that they have the ability to turn into any cell type. So they're pluripotent. So we like to know what the molecular mechanisms are that maintain that sort of very naive state. And then you can drive them down to differentiate to particular cell types. So we want to know how to do that as well. And so you're actually observing what happens as embryos grow. That's right. Effectively, I mean, these are cell lines, so they grow in tissue culture, but they act as a laboratory model of how embryos grow. It seems to me that there's so many different tissues in the body. There must be so many different ways for the cells to get instructions. There's a surprisingly small number of instructions, but they can be used um, in different combinations and at different concentrations. So if you go to the adult body in humans, there's about 220 different cell types. And there's a few more of that that get produced along the way as the embryo grows. But there's not a huge number of cell types. But those signals combine to drive a naive cell through all of the different cell types to get to a mature cell type like a skin cell or a nerve cell. And that's how the process really develops. Different combinations of factors working at the right time and at the right place as the embryo develops so that everything occurs in the right order. And so what are the challenges to finding out what these signals are and the order that they need to happen in? The challenges are finding the molecules that, that you can put into the system that will drive the steps sequentially. And generally they're things like growth factors, for example, and cytokines, usually protein molecules, but also there are some small molecule growth factors that also have very important roles in the developmental process of embryos. So the starting point really often is what growth factors and cytokines you need to drive the steps sequentially. Those growth factors and cytokines generally bind to receptors and stimulate what we call cell signaling pathways, which is a cascade of events inside the cell. So really what you're doing is transferring information from outside the cell with the growth factor binds to a receptor and that information is transferred inside the cell and decoded and the outcomes of that can be the differentiation process for development to proceed. The differentiation that you're learning for all of this, what are the uses to which this technology, well these techniques will be put? There's two main things. The general public will know about the major one and that is the production of particular cell types that might be used in cell therapies for a range of human diseases and injuries that are currently very poorly treatable or not treatable. So in other words, cell therapy is what most people think about. 
But the second thing is really underpins that and actually is in a sense much more important and that is simply learning what the molecular mechanisms are in the processes of development. So if you understand the mechanisms in sufficient detail you can then begin to understand how normal and abnormal development proceeds and if you know those things then you can begin to get much better clues about how to intervene when things go wrong or how to fix things when things have gone wrong. Now, whether that's by using a cell therapy or developing an appropriate drug or some combination of those things is another matter. But, but really, most of the information that's come out that's been really useful is that understanding of normal and abnormal developmental processes. And that's something, it's an ongoing investigation. There's still a lot to understand. A huge amount, because um, I talked about maybe using combinations of growth factors outside the cell. You might have two growth factors. But each of those might, for example, stimulate half a dozen signalling pathways each. And each of those signalling pathways interact in various complex ways. And below that, there are different genes that are then expressed or not expressed uh, on the back of all of those signalling pathways. So it becomes an enormously complex process inside the cell. The amazing thing is the cell has the ability to decode all of that information and make the appropriate decisions. And there could be a number of decisions that the cell makes. It might be to differentiate, to grow faster to, or to grow slower, to not die, to change shape, to go on the move, or any combination of those things. So uh, it's very complex and we are beginning to understand that we need to understand that complexity in order to have the best chance to understand what's going on and then in order to have the best chance to intervene appropriately and try to fix things. So what are some of the projects you're working on at the moment? So we're working on three main things. One is looking at the ability of these naive stem cells to make neural cells and in order to do that they need to go down a pathway of development which includes a number of intermediate steps. We've developed protocols for producing those cells uh, which have some novel growth factors in them that have not been described before. So that's interesting from our point of view. It also means that ultimately we should be able to produce cells that might be used in animal models of human diseases and injury. Uh, we're also interested in the fact that nutrition plays a big role in development because the cells need to pick up their nutrients in order to survive. But what I think we're beginning to understand is that um, metabolism that comes from that the addition of nutrition, of nutrients into the medium, is not just a means of keeping the cells alive, it's actually required to make the cells differentiate appropriately. So there's this synthesis between differentiation processes of cells and the metabolism of cells. The two aren't distinct from one another, they actually work hand in hand. And that's a little understood phenomenon. And the third thing is because we use these cells as a model of what happens in the embryo, and I have a collaborator, Margot Day, who works just upstairs in fact, uh, and what we are trying to do is take the molecular mechanisms that we've learned from stem cells and see if they actually apply to real embryos. Because it's a model you would expect it to, uh, but it doesn't necessarily happen that way. But in general, all of the information we've gathered from the stem cells 
and have applied to the embryos themselves have strong analogies. The mechanisms are the same or very similar, so that we're showing that it really that the stem cells really are a useful model. Now that's a value because there's a lot of IVF goes on in Australia. One of the things you have to do is grow small embryos in a dish out to an early stage before they get implanted. That's not a very efficient process. So if we can understand the molecular mechanisms of the early development, we can improve the culture conditions for those embryos with the hope of improving the success of IVF. And you start with mouse embryos? We work on mouse embryos, that's right, because it's easier to do, and ethically it's very easy to do. It's very hard to get hold of human embryos. So we're using the mouse as a model for human development, which is a reasonable thing to do. Again, whatever mechanisms we find in the way mouse embryos develop are likely to have very similar parallels or the, exactly the same mechanisms in human embryos. We are starting to work closely with a company that will help us actually look at human embryos to see how strong those parallels are uh, and to see whether it what information we're learning from the mouse embryos really, if it really does help to improve the development of human embryos in culture before they get re-implanted. How would they be able to do that? In Australia there are embryos that are frozen away that might never be re-implanted into the womb of the recipient hopeful mother. Mm. Um, they can either be thrown away or they can be used for further experimental research if the ethical clearance is there to do that. Some of those embryos are really early embryos, like one or two cell embryos. So if we learn how to improve the growth of a mouse embryo in culture, then we can try and get hold of some of those early embryos and see if that helps to improve the development of human embryos in culture. So there's hope there for helping developmental um, illnesses that happen in the womb as well as inherited diseases. I guess that's one of the possible useful side effects, if you like. Um, if, so let me go back a step. Oh, sure. um, for IVF, it's a reasonably inefficient process, but it does work. There are some problems that IVF babies tend to have more often than normal birth babies, including things like cardiovascular increases in cardiovascular disease, etc. Some of that may be due to just poor early development. In other words, very long-term effects out 20, 30, 40 years might be due to poor development in the first few days. So if we can improve the quality of development in the first few days, that may assist in reducing long-term effects for some of those children. So the IVF babies will benefit from these techniques being used to produce healthier embryos and therefore healthier people? Possibly. Possibly. Uh, but, there are, but there are advantages earlier in the process. Um, IVF is about 20 to 25% efficient 
it's not very efficient so if you can boost that that's good it means that you can reimplant fewer embryos with the hope of having some success and actually that figure of 20 to 25 percent is a is a little bit disingenuous because that figure is only for the embryos that are reimplanted what you don't get in that story is the embryos that never make it to the stage of being implanted. And that's quite inefficient as well. So all up, it's a very inefficient process. It's a very expensive process. Um, it's a time-consuming and very fraught process. Um, so if there are ways and means of improving the efficiency of that, it's, there are benefits all around. So you're, fun you're doing fundamental science on the development of embryos and so there's well there's unlimited possible future benefits you can't always tell because you're doing the fundamental science that everything else is built on mm -hmm. that's right uh, but it's certainly not the only way to go uh, you probably know yourself there are any number of ways now large number of ways of for example trying to understand the molecular mechanisms of development you can do it with embryonic stem cells, you can do it with adult stem cells, you can do it with induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, you can do it with eggs and sperm. So in order to understand the fundamental processes of development, using embryonic stem cells is one of the ways to go. Um, in terms of producing cell therapies, embryonic stem cells is one of the ways to go. Um, it may be that a cure for a particular disease or injury could come from uh, using embryonic stem cells as the original source of cells, or it could come from using adult stem cells, or it could come from using induced pluripotent stem cells, or whatever. I think the important thing is that you need to keep all of those options open because nobody knows which source of cells is going to be the winner in terms of developing an effective and uh, effective for the patient treatment and cost-effective treatment. There's fundamental issues with respect to the ethics of using cell therapies, particularly for embryonic stem cells. And that's uh, been a debate that's been raging across the world, really, uh, for ever since human embryonic stem cells were you know, first um, isolated in 1998. There's no problem with having those ethical debates. And in Australia, there's been you know, vigorous debate, um, which has resulted in uh, very directed legislation um, over the years where the legislation is revisited um, to see if it's, you know, we're on course. And I think in Australia, we're doing that job pretty well. At the moment, for example, if you want to make a new embryonic stem cell line from humans, uh, it has to be um, frozen embryos made for the purposes of IVF that are no longer going to be uh, used uh, and probably their development wasn't that good so they wouldn't have been reimplanted into the mother anyway. And it has to be with consent uh, and there's no financial gain either from the healthcare workers or for the donor. So all of that came about through robust debate over the years. And I think we've, we've got the settings about right in this country. 
In other countries, it's more liberal, much more liberal. In others, it's, it's, it's extremely tight. But I think in terms of getting the research moving in an ethical way, we've done a pretty good job here. Michael Morris, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That was Michael Morris, head of the Embryonic Stem Cell Laboratory at the Bosch Institute at the University of Sydney, investigating the basic science of embryology to find out how stem cells turn into other cells. And now here's Derek Muller of the Veritasium YouTube channel with I'm Adams. made of protons, neutrons, and electrons, the first two in the nucleus, the third around it, is mostly empty space. But it feels solid in any case. The elements are all the different types of atoms. They differ by the number of protons in the middle. Hydrogen has only one, but uranium has a ton. Oh, it's just chemistry. That you and me are made of these atoms Atoms bond together to form molecules Most of what's around in me and you Water, sugar, things yet undreamed of, 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 of Look around, you see the combinations in a eucalypt tree Mandalay's periodicity Gives us sand and water and the air above of, 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 of. Oh, it's just chemistry that you and me are made of these atoms hydrogen oxygen carbon nitrogen make up the world's life forms do 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 you wonder how matter forms something strange when there's a chemical change bo ba 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 where did these atoms come from? They were fused in stars. Light elements combined, releasing life from afar. Fusion in the sun creates helium. I guess what I'd be saying is you gotta use your reason to open up your mind and see the cause of the seasons. How do we know what's true? A scientific method shows you and it's just chem. A street that you and me are made of these atoms. Well, atoms bond together to form molecules. Most of what's around in me and you, water, sugar, sand, and you'll find things undreamed of. So are got neon, xenon. There's no need to overstate. Cause we are, of course, this, this, this world made atoms. And now, feedback 
where the listeners talk back. The previous week's story about the Zanzaclick piezoelectric mozzibyte zapper provoked Dalton to write and suggest I ask the manufacturer about the device's effects on vector-borne diseases and parasites like the dog heartworm parvovirus and malaria. It's an excellent question that's been forwarded to Zanzaclick. I'll report back to you with their answer. If you recall my story about phishing scams in the same show, I mentioned that one of the signs that an email might be fake was putting your name in the subject line. Dalton has a great sense of humour. The subject line of his email was, Attention, Ian Wolf. Thank you, Dalton. Eric wrote in about the Byte Zapper story too. He questioned whether I'd made a mistake in saying that the spark from the zapper lasted 0.01 milliseconds, when surely it must be much longer. I sent Eric a screen capture of the page of the paper I used as the source. Eric wrote back explaining that he had a piezoelectric device handy, so he'd done the science, and actually measured how long the electric pulse was. Eric connected the device to an oscilloscope via some resistors, and then measured the length of the pulse, and found it was indeed 0.01 milliseconds. He kindly sent me photos of the oscilloscope screen and his experimental setup. Thank you, Eric. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and leave a comment. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby-Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And please rate us on iTunes. Diffusion needs funding. The Bank of Ian has no income stream. Please contact me at science at diffusionradio.com if you'd like to sponsor the show, suggest a business model, or help with applying for grants, or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.